Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, a deal is expected to be announced today in regards to Hamilton's entertainment venues. Who's going to run them? We'll find out and talk about it. Yesterday, the federal government announced that they're going to be providing money to each province to help with COVID-19 reopening processes. Show me the money. Where's it going to go? And the bid for the 2026 Commonwealth Games continues. We'll give you the pros and cons that we've heard so far. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's talk a little bit about what's going to happen with what most people are now calling the entertainment precinct. And essentially what that means is first Ontario Centre, the arena, formerly Cops Coliseum, uh, the convention centre, and of course Hamilton Place, first Ontario Concert Hall. Uh, they're old, they're tired, they need some work, they need millions and millions of dollars in upgrades. And two proponents have come forward on this and and suggested that they have the plan. And as we mentioned, uh, we're probably going to hear sometime this morning as to which one of those are going to be chosen. Uh, Hamilton lawyer Jasper Kajawski has been intimately involved in this right from the get-go. He was initially uh, asked by city council to do a a report on this, which he did some years ago, about what needed to be done and what possibility options are going to be there. And uh, one of the areas that uh, that I know he concentrated on in those three facilities uh, was the convention center itself and this is what he told us a little while ago a city the size of hamilton needs to look at a convention center which is competitive with the centers in cities like calgary ottawa halifax winnipeg all of whom have seen um, updated convention centers in the last number of years and that's something that hamilton needs and that's a centerpiece of our plan for the downtown that's about the convention center, and we'll delve into that in just a couple of seconds. The other one that I guess a lot of folks tend to think about when we talk about the, the entertainment precinct is the arena, Cops Coliseum, which was, of course, built initially to, in the hopes that we were going to get an NHL team. That hasn't happened and never will happen as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but it has turned into a pretty good concert hall. But even in that regard, uh, it's become a tired, outdated facility. Uh, last year, uh, the cl- uh, heavy metal rock group uh, Def Leppard played there, and, uh, well... <laughs> They didn't have a very high opinion of the arena. This is what they said. This building is old. The underneath of this building stinks like a 10,000 asses stink. There you go. Uh, That's not the sort of stuff you put on a brochure to try to attract business. So obviously there's some work that needs to be done on the arena as well. Joining us to talk about this is Marvin Ryder, of course, uh, from the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. But Marvin is also a former uh, chair of HECFI. That was the uh, organization, the citizens organization that oversaw our entertainment facilities for years and years. Uh, Marvin, welcome back. Good to have you on the show today. How are you doing? Thank you, Bill. Uh, uh, Boy, here we are now. Uh, uh, Just juxtapose that with the, 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 the... I guess the great feeling that everybody seemed to have when you were chairing this board, because these were, these were essentially new facilities at that time, and there was a lot of hope about exactly how that was going to be transformational for Hamilton, wasn't it? Well, yes, and, and, and not, to, um, not to make me seem too old, but that was in the early 90s, 90 to 96, when I was yeah. involved with it. And back in those days, we bid not once but twice on NHL teams. Right. Of course, the closest bid we got was back in 1990 with, Ron Joyce, and, and we came ever so close. It was Ottawa that won that lottery at that time. But they were new then, and this is 30 years later. It's hard to say that out loud, 30 years later. And absolutely, uh, it, it's not just uh, Jasper. It's every consultant who's looked at those buildings said, you've got a fisher-cut bait here. If, if you want to keep these buildings, they need a dramatic refresh, a dramatic makeover, or the alternative is to say, let's tear them down and do something else with that space. But trying to keep them going the way they are, take the arena, for instance, the uh, ice-making uh, equipment leaks, and it leaks quite badly into the soil. That's also caused problems with the cement. Uh, it isn't just a, a simple maintenance issue. It's a dramatic remake. And basically why we're going down this road is, do we use taxpayer dollars, or is there a chance to inject private sector money into this? So city staff were asked to investigate these two proposals, and they're both big numbers, Bill. One is from the Vrancor Group, a budget of around 200 to $250 million. And then the bigger one is the group, uh, this is uh, Carmen's, the Mercanti family, Leuna, Fengate, uh, Meridian Credit Union, $500 million 
to refresh these facilities. They did need to be looked at carefully, and we'll be curious to see what comes out from City Council in the morning. How would you prioritize these? I mean, of these three facilities, uh, and again, we're kind of handicapping this, but because they do, they do come as a package. Uh, you know, the concert hall, which has been around for an awful long time, uh, probably is okay. It's going to need, a, you know, a little bit of sprucing up. Uh, the arena, major work needs to be done. The convention center is uh, is just so outdated uh, from from you know the time that, as you mentioned, when you were on the board and it was built. Uh, I've been to a number of those other cities. I've seen the new one in Winnipeg, in Calgary, and 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 Ottawa, and places like that. And we're not even in the same league. That 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 may actually qualify. I would think Marvin is the one thing that needs to just hey, okay, knock this thing down and let's get something better. Well, or or even do we keep a convention center altogether? So yeah. let me just go through those three facilities quickly. If sure. I can. The, the, what we used to know as Hamilton Place, the performing arts venue, what's unique here is that, that was, uh, raised, money was raised from the public in large, and so I, I think there would be a lot of people concerned, well, are we just going to hand this over to the private sector? Is there going to be some uh, uh, ownership remain with the city of Hamilton? Its biggest problem, Bill, is a, a sprinklering system that is desperately needed in that facility, but it was never designed to have it at the time. How do you find the millions to do that? But it, it is on itself a, a sound building. The problem is programming. Uh, the love of ballet, the love of opera, the love of the Philharmonic Orchestra is not the same as it was 30 years ago. So how do you make it a modern performing venue that can accommodate everything from country and western performances, magicians, etc. I think that's the biggest challenge there. The, the arena, the problem is simply the physical plant itself. We, we have a tenant. They don't draw huge numbers. And when you try to put 2,500 or 3,500 or even 6,000 people in Cops Coliseum, the old Cops Coliseum, uh, they get lost in a place that sits 17,000. Back in my day, we invested in a curtaining system to curtain off the upper bowl so it wasn't as obvious that the place wasn't full. But still, how do you, how do you come up with that? So I think that's a key component here. And then the big question mark is the convention facility. From the time Hamilton built it, every other major city in Canada suddenly built a convention facility. So where there used to be, you know, let's say there were seven major convention facilities, now there are 25 of them. And the number of conventions have come down, the number of days of conventions have gone down. The amount of spending at a convention has gone down. Conventions aren't what they once were. So if you're going to have a convention center, you need to have something that can, again, play with multiple uses, not just conventions, but, say, these uh, multi-day trade shows uh, like the Hamilton Food and Drink Festival, what have you. We need something that's scalable and expandable, can shrink down, go up uh, accordingly. And that, oddly enough, in both of these proposals, I think is the biggest aspect of them. Uh, in one case, they're talking about building, a, if you will, a new convention center completely on the site of the city center, the mall that the Eaton's people used to be involved with. Uh, the other one says, no, but we're going to do a dramatic refresh and add a hotel to it. Uh, both of them see a couple of new office towers constructed. And, and so there's going to be a lot of interesting details that will come out to see which way the city wants to go on this. I want to get some perspective on this, and because I, I sat on the Hecbury board at two. It was long after you were finished, though, but, uh, when I was on city council, uh, starting in 1997. Uh, and I think uh, just around that time frame, uh, the late 1990s, it, we as a city council actually put a proposal out to see if anybody was interested in, in buying in and, and helping with these facilities. And all we got was crickets. I mean, no response at all from anybody. Are you surprised at the great interest that seems to have come up from the, the private sector in this situation now? Uh, well, I'm going to say yes. Uh, back then when you did it, Bill, you, you know, you were looking at national groups and even international yeah. groups, and neither of the groups uh, bidding on this are national or international, meaning uh, whether it's the Vrancor Group, which is a wonderful developer, but here just in Hamilton, or even with the Credit Union and the Leuna Pension Fund, Pengate Capital, they certainly have national input, but they're still fairly regional in their approach to things. Um, I, I mean, I think that's wonderful that they've come forward. Back then, you were looking at other kinds of, of people, people who were trying to maybe put together a 10-arena deal across North America, and they just weren't interested in Hamilton. Hamilton has always had the problem when we try to attract uh, a talent that we get lumped in with Toronto. And I know uh, once upon a time back in my day, we had a, a, a booking uh, with Neil Diamond. He did two days at uh, the old... Um, uh, uh, 
and I can't think what we call the Maple Leafs facility the, uh, uh, in Toronto, and then they came to Hamilton. And, of course, he loved what was in Hamilton. But when you live in Los Angeles and you say, what's the difference between Hamilton and Toronto, you pull out a map, you say, well, it's really the same place because you're doing it with a Los Angeles mindset, you know, all yeah. of that megalopolis of Los Angeles there. And we say, no, 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 we're, we're quite different down here. It was always hard to get promoters to see the difference between Hamilton and Toronto for a venue. But he loved the facility. He, he said that the, um, the ventilation system in Hamilton was such that it, it did less damage to his throat than singing at the old Maple Leaf Gardens. Yeah, because there's some big acts there. I mean, as you mentioned, Neil Diamond, Shania Twain was there. Uh, we had Garth Brooks before Garth Brooks was even the huge superstar that he is now. I mean, he did a, a couple of solo shows at the Old Cops Coliseum. Of course, about a year and a half or so ago, he did five days here. It was just incredible. But it's a tired facility. I mean, when it was built, I remember for the opening ceremony there, uh, that when it opened way back when, and it was it was state of the art. I mean, we were ready and willing and able to host an NHL franchise. They wouldn't even look at an arena like this. And we've heard a lot of the shortcomings from Michael Andelar, the owner of the Bulldogs, who of course has been the main tenant there for the last little while. And by the way, to his credit, he's pumped an awful lot of his own money into this as well. But you know, retrofitting it right now, I guess the the justification is going to be, well, can these guys get their money back? They all seem to think this is a it, worthy of an investment, though. Yeah, so there's two aspects to this, Bill. I think one is the capital cost. And so when we talk about $200 million or $250 million or $500 million, this is the, the cost, if you will, to, to do the renovation, to do the upgrade, to do that. But then how do they get their money back? So clearly if they're private sector people, they aren't just putting this money in in the goodness of the heart. Uh, they're going to want an exchange for this to then operate these facilities. It will no longer be a city-owned facility. It will no longer have city staff. Uh, they take ownership. They now have to bring in the volume of activity, and and they're going to be pressed to to bring in all of those different concerts or events as, as needed. Now, keep in mind that um, the Carmen's Group, who's involved with the larger project, has now had some experience running these. It was, I guess, now almost three years ago, four years ago, that the city handed management to some different people rather than trying to manage it themselves. So Carmen's has more experience on the ground. The Vrancor proposal worries me a little bit because they've not had any experience trying to fill these venues and bring in these kinds of activities. And so, again, the devil in the details here what, what is the plan here? We put in this kind of money, how are they going to get a return? For instance, maybe what they're planning to do is, is fix these facilities, but then lease them back to the city and say, okay, we'll do this upfront work, you pay us a fee of $5 million a year for the next 20 years, or $10 million a year for the next 20 years, and they're your facilities to run and manage, versus we're going to do this, but at the end of the day, we're going to own them. And another wild card in all of this, uh, uh, these three large facilities don't pay any property taxes because they're city-owned. If they were to be transferred to the private sector, suddenly then there might be property taxes that could be gathered. And is that part of the proposal? So to go from a former cost to the city budget to perhaps a, a revenue in the city budget, that would be huge for the city fathers as well. And so I'm not, I'm not again, we don't know the details behind these proposals. That will be important to look at. There's another element to this, too. Some years ago, and I've, I think I've told this story on the show before, uh, I had uh, the, the pleasure of meeting the, the folks who were trying to bring football back to Ottawa uh, at uh, the old Lansdowne Park. And uh, these were developers, of course, not unlike what we're dealing with here today. And uh, as I had the discussion with them, and, you know, they were going to do redo the football stadium, but there was a much, much bigger picture that they had about commercial and, and, and residential and, and office space. And anybody who's been to Ottawa with the new stadium understands that it's, a, it's they've redeveloped that whole neighborhood. And they, they told me at that time, they said, you know what, the stadium's a throw-in. Uh, we'll do that. It's going to cost us some money, but we're going to get our money back because of all the other developments. Well, both of the proponents here, Marvin, are talking about office towers and other developments as well, possibly a hotel and things of that nature. Is is that the the the, the goal? Is that the, the the nugget here that these guys are really looking at? Well, I'm going to have to answer your question this way and say it might be. These uh, proposals have not been made public, so obviously yeah. I had no chance to to read through them and comb through to find the fine details. But you're absolutely right. Both uh, proposals do talk about additional buildings, office towers in some cases, hotels. One proposal, I think, had two office towers. Um, uh, so that could be the way they make some of their money back. And remember, again, the more people you bring into the downtown core, even if it is to work in the downtown core, the more there is a synergy here. In other words, people who 
who live downtown, work downtown, then want to recreate downtown, they're more likely to say, well, look, at the end of work today, let's get a bite to eat and go to that hockey game or let's go to that concert afterwards than if they travel back to a suburb or travel back to another town. Once they're in that other city, it's very hard to get them to make the return trip downtown. So that may all be part of the plan. And I also should warn you, I'm going to phrase it like that, warn you that it's not clear to me that this is what I call the one fell swoop approach. In other words, it may be a $500 million project, it may be a $250 million project, but it might be phased. So there's a phase one development, maybe that will focus on redoing the arena first, that'll make Michael Andlauer happy, and maybe the convention center is 10 years from now, or maybe the refresh of the of the uh, performing arts venue is 10 years from now, maybe those other office towers get built faster. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think that actually makes sense to try to build six things simultaneously is a planning nightmare. But it also may be that we, we you know, as they go through all of this, we'll hear, well, that first one worked and the second phase worked, but we're going to delay phase four. We've seen that kind of thing before. So I think we have to, again, look through this with some detail to see what are the phases of these projects. Absolutely. Well, we're probably going to get some clarity, probably not everything we need to know, but some clarity a little bit later on today uh, when they decide which one of these uh, groups we're going to go with. Marvin, great to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for the time today. Glad to be with you, Bill. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The federal government has announced uh, that they are going to provide $19 billion to the provinces and territories to help fund what they call the safe restart of the Canadian economy. Prime Minister Trudeau made the announcement uh, yesterday, but uh, there were some conditions. This is what he had to say. As part of this agreement, we've outlined seven priority areas on which to focus our efforts like increased testing and contact tracing, securing more personal protective equipment, and more support for the most vulnerable, including for seniors in long-term care facilities and nursing homes. Interesting uh, about that particular aspect of this. Joining us to talk about uh, how this all came down and what the, the ramifications are going to be is our good friend Richard Brennan, retired journalist with the Toronto Star who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for many, many years. Uh, Badger, thanks so much for joining us on the program today. i, I got to tell you, when I heard this yesterday, uh, my first reaction was I'm surprised they did this because the, the, you know, the federal and provincial governments usually have an awful lot of difficulty getting together on any kind of funding agreement, but this one seemed to happen rather smoothly, not so much as, as some of the other things have had in the past right now. Were you surprised that these guys were all on the same page? I, well, it's always surprising when the federal government and the provinces agree on anything. But this has been in the background. They've been working on this for a while. This just didn't happen overnight. Mm-hmm. And and so you know, nineteen billion dollars—that is one big chunk of money. And you know, even with the riders that the federal government put on it, I mean, there is money there for municipalities. And just as as an aside, I heard some municipalities and provinces say, "But it's not enough." I'd like to one day hear a municipality or province say, "Yeah, you know, that's good. That's that's just what we need." <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I don't think it'll ever happen, so I'm just uh, dreaming here. No, so, I mean, there's that's a lot of money. Ontario gets uh, $7 billion, and, you know, a lot. I mean, that really supports what they want to do, this, this provincial government, that is, with uh, to try and improve the lot for people living in, in long-term care. And that's one of the writers that, as you know, that, that was put on up by, by the, uh, the prime minister. Also, there's another one that was put on there, uh, a condition, and that was that there be 10 days paid leave for uh, workers who affected by COVID. And I don't think the federal government budged on that. I still think that's a condition. So, you know, there's a few conditions there, but there's not. It's not something that the provinces could, you know, uh, couldn't live with. And so they agreed to it. But this this is, uh, I, I mean, I, who would have thought it? But it's happened, and like I say, it's been happening, it's been worked on for quite a while. And it's money that the municipalities, the province, and particularly the municipalities, need desperately. 
Yeah, it's uh, surprising because uh, the initial ask, and I think the initial part of the discussion, uh, what the, the government, the federal government, that is, put on the table initially was fourteen billion, uh, and they they upped that to nineteen billion now, which I guess is one of the things that the provinces were asking for in this situation. We're uh, we're not astounded by these big numbers anymore, are we? Well, when I was a young pop reporter. Uh, you know, a billion dollars was like it was. This is back in the in the seventies. Uh, you know, the mid seventies. It was really the billion dollars was being talked about. Not much, you know. You know how we threw around millions, and you know, city councils would talk about millions and that. But then the billion dollars was creeping into the uh, lexicon, if you will. And now we're talking that the, we're talking a federal deficit that could reach a trillion dollars. I mean. Who would have ever thought that would be possible? Well, whoever thought COVID was going to come along. Well, that's it. But you know, you know, when COVID when COVID finally gets wrestled to the ground, which we hope happens sooner than later, we've got a big bill, and they're they're going to have to take care of it and start working it down. And I mean, how the heck? You know, where do you start to try and uh, you know trim away at at uh, you know at, at trillion dollars and, and we've had discussions with various economists about this over the last couple of months because you know these are big numbers and you're right i mean at some point the bill has to come due uh and and the consensus seems to be some of that deficit that we're accruing right now is probably going to be made up once the economy starts to to, to recover itself you know and there's going to be more money going around and that's going to help but it's not going to cover everything so there's still going to have to be some pretty tough decisions made by governments in the future but uh, the attitude of not just the federal government, but I think even the provincial governments right now, uh, seems to be, let's just live for today. We'll worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. Well, the COVID has a lot to do with that. You know, it's it's pretty hard to think about the future when you've got people dying around you. And so, you know, right now they're just, they are living basically from day to day and, and hoping, you know, the, for the best in six months to a year or whatever it takes. So yeah, money is no object right now, and that that's all well and good for people that need that money to, uh, you know, assert or, or 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 whatever. But the thing is, it's it's a big chunk of money, and it the bill's going to come due. And you know, how are we going to get money? And one of the things that you said, Bill, the economy is going to, in, you know, improve. There's no question about that, and that's going going to you know. Uh, you know that's going to compensate for some of the money we're certainly we're spending now, but it's it's uh, you know it's it's an unknown quantity. We don't know what's happening you know in the future. All we are right now is looking from day to day, and you can't help politicians can't help people for thinking that way because of what's happening. And Lord knows it's it's going to be uh, it's going to be some difficult times still. Despite nineteen billion dollars, we're still looking at some tough times. Let me ask you something, though. In all the years you've been covering both federal and provincial politics, the concern that I've heard, and, and I, I think I share this concern as well, is that this just adds another level uh, of, of bureaucracy to this situation. In other words, you mentioned the fact that Ontario is going to get $7 billion of this amount, uh, but then it's going to be up to the, the provincial government, the Ford government, to decide where that money goes, to which cities and, and for what. Uh, as opposed to the cities, and we've talked to Mayor Eisenberger and other mayors, Marianne Mead, Warden, Burlington, and, and others, they would prefer a direct link between the feds and the cities so that, you know, that money is where we want it uh, and how much of it we're going to get. Uh, that may or may not happen now because there's this extra level of bureaucracy and this extra level of government that's going to decide where that money's going to be doled out. But that's always been thus, though, Bill. I yeah, mean, pretty much. Yeah, you know, I get it. You know, it's. I mean, we are. You know, the the provinces are are a creature of the federal government. The municipalities are a creature of the province. So it's it's natural that that money be filtered down to the province. The province will decide. You know who gets this money, and certainly, you know, I mean, you if you're a mayor, you're going to be putting your best foot forward right now because you want your your own piece of the pie because you know. A billion dollars of that is going to go to Toronto. Sure. Oh, easily, right off the top. Yeah, right, right off the top. You know, it's the biggest. You know, the population by far. You know, the biggest population in in the country. So that money's going there. We know that. So the rest is going to be divvied up for 
municipalities, long-term care, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And trying, or if there's a second wave come along, this money is going to be used towards, you know, PPEs, uh, all kinds of things. So I don't, I don't see the, the, you know, I know the municipalities would love to deal directly with the federal government, but that's not, it's not going to happen. Period. Is this enough? I, I, I know that the, the premier said, you know, initially the fourteen billion dollars that was initially, uh, you know, put on the table was not enough. So they, they have bumped it up to nineteen billion. But when we've talked with the, the again the, the mayors and also the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, which is the mayors from right across the country. Uh, they say that their deficit is about $10 billion. That's just for the cities alone, uh, which cuts into this significantly. And, and you have to wonder just, you know, where that money is going to go. And, and the province is going to need some of it, too. I mean, it's one thing to say it's going to flow through to the cities and, and towns and municipalities. But, you know, the province has their own programs that they're going to have to fund as well. And I'm just wondering if this is actually going to cover some of those costs. Well, municipalities... You know, even with whatever chunk of this money they get, there's going to be some tough decisions being made in the municipality, you know, in terms of programs, maybe not offering certain programs, you know, maybe not fixing the roads for a couple of years, and, or, and raising taxes. You know, I, I know that's, that's a dirty word with people, but on the other hand, I don't see how any municipality that's cash-starved has an alternative. You know, I think any any municipality or residents of wherever it might be, from Olin Sound to you know you know to uh, Wawa, they I would think that they should be prepared for not a big hit, but they'll be prepared with the tax hike to take care of some of this this lost revenue. Well, and that's going to happen, and it's you're right. It's an ugly decision because nobody in elected office wants to be that person that says you're going to have to pay more in property taxes, and time and time again. Uh, that's the answer that municipalities get when they go to federal or provincial governments that said you always have the option you can just you know you can just increase property taxes uh, but as you know and I know as residents of this community especially we're you know pretty much at our limit now I mean I, I don't know that we could bear those sorts of increases you know as, as we've talked about in the past property taxes are the most regressive form of taxation ever because it's not based on your ability to pay no and uh, nobody wants to go down that road oh well, I'm not saying for a second bill it's fair. But it is a reality. Yeah. And it's a reality that every council in this, in this province is going to have to wrestle with, whether they raise taxes. You know, they can trim here and there and, you know, like I said previously. But, you know, sometimes that doesn't add up to all that much. So where do they look to? And that'll be, the, you know, that'll be the residents of their specific uh, towns and cities to, to pony up. And it might be it might be just a marginal increase, but it'll you know if 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 there's a city out there that tells me, oh no, we're going to hold the line, and I would say to them, you're full of it. Yeah, I I I, I think that ship has sailed. This idea that yeah, we're going to give you a zero percent tax increase. I mean, we understand the the costs here are significant, but you know the other levels of government are going to have to be realistic about this as well. I mean. Uh, you know, I can remember back in the day when Stephen Harper formed government, I guess it was two, 2006, uh, one of the first things they did was, okay, we're going to reduce your federal taxes. Well, that basically means they're going to reduce the revenue that's going into the federal coffers, which sent them into a, a, a downward spiral. We had 10 years of, of deficit governments from that because they didn't bring in enough revenue to pay for the stuff that they wanted to do. Uh, and, and there's got to have to be, I think, some harsh realizations about exactly, you know, what these governments are going to do, both federal, provincial, and municipal, uh, to generate revenue. And they're going to try to find some, quote-unquote, creative ways to do that, but eventually it's going to come out of our pockets. Well, any any government that tells you that, you know, we're going to cut your taxes, you know, your provincial income tax or whatever it is, and, uh, you know, things will be just fine. They're living in fantasy land. We've already seen that. We've seen it so many times where, where governments, you know, say that provincial governments, federal governments say we're going to cut your taxes. And just like you said, Bill, you know, you sooner or later have to pay the piper. That's all there is to it. Because there are two elements to that. As, and, you know, you're either going to do less 
which some people, as you know, in, in, a, in a philosophical thing, go, oh, it's great. We don't want government in our face. But, well, you know, maybe it's a program that you need. Maybe it's a program that somebody in your family needs. Uh, they're going to eliminate that because if they get less money. Or, as you say, they're going to start running into deficits. The problem that cities have is they're not allowed to run deficits. So, you know, they, they have no option when, cause, when prices start to go up like this than to raise property taxes. Well, and, and I know that as of today, you know, as we sit here on the 17th of July, we're saying, well, do we really need to have that discussion? Well, we better uh, because, you know, th- this is going to happen sooner than later. But you saw in that omnibus bill, I think it's under the omnibus bill, that they're going to be allowed to run deficit for two years. Yeah. And, you know, hopefully they don't have to do that, but it is a bit of a cushion. But again, you know, you run a deficit for two years, sooner or later you're going to have to make it up. And hopefully that you can do that, you know, that the economy uh, turns around, some companies, businesses move into your city and, and bring within, you know, uh, give extra taxes. And this, these are things you can hope for, but you can't bank on. Well, and which is one of the th- reasons why you have to look at uh, money that's being put on the table, even if it's up by other levels of government, and say, is that worthy of, of us going after it? And if, I mean, that's one of the decisions Hamilton's Council is going to have to make, of course, when it comes to this Commonwealth bid uh, that uh, we're going to talk about a little bit later on in the program. When you have a private sector entity or a bunch of them, or even federal and provincial governments that are going to say, yeah, we can help you with some of this infrastructure, that essentially means that the municipality may have to pony up some money, but they're doing it with, with like 30 cent dollars instead of 100 cent dollars because they're getting help from other levels of government. Uh, you have to waste something like that in, in situations like that. And, and again, I, we don't even know that yet with the Commonwealth bid. But boy, you need to explore this sort of thing and be kind of creative as to how you can generate revenue right now other than taxes. But is the, you know, the Commonwealth bid going to generate, what's it going to generate? I mean, again, you hope it does, but there's no there's no certainty to that. Uh, no. You know, there's an old expression, "bread not circuses." You know, and maybe oh, this, yeah. this is the time maybe to think hard and long about holding the Commonwealth Games here. I mean, it'd be great. It's good for the city. It's good for city's image, and you know, it brings a lot of attention to it. But is this the time to do it? And I'm not arguing one way or the other. But I mean, these these are hard questions. Somebody's got to be asking themselves. Yeah, well, as I say, in the next uh, hour, we're going to uh, actually have a discussion with uh, David Grevenberg, who is uh, with the Commonwealth Games Federation. He's going to call us from the U.K., and uh, we'll try to get some clarity about what's going on and what's happened in past games, because he's been involved in, in a number of them. But that's that's that element of the discussion. But on a much broader scale, uh, the fact that the, the, the federal government has stepped up here uh, is in sharp contrast, frankly, uh, to what we've seen uh, south of the border, where, you know, governors and uh, mayors uh, in just about every part of the United States right now are crying for federal assistance to, to try to help them with some of this stuff. And basically, the, the Trump administration has said, you guys are on your own. Uh, thankfully, in our situation, in our circumstance here, uh, the federal government seems to have stepped up and said, well, you know, we're going to help you out of this. We'll, we'll worry about the bill later, but let's just get everybody back on their feet. Build the wall, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, you know what? It's 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 good. It's good that we aren't like them, and it's, we never have been. You know, we've been, you know, uh, we haven't been that beggar thy neighbor kind of way of doing things. But this, you know, it's this is Canada, and we when we do things. I mean, this is a good thing that they've done. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm all wrong, and maybe the municipalities are saying is not enough. But I'll tell you, it's better than nothing. Exactly. Exactly. It's never going to be enough, is it? I mean, no. you know, considering the bills that are being run up right now and the things that want to be done vis-a-vis transit and infrastructure and everything else. But uh, uh, a little bit can go a long, long way. And it's going to be interesting to see just how this uh, starts to filter down to uh, cities like Hamilton and others. And I'm still uh, waiting for that billion dollars for transit. Yeah, yeah. That's, I'm sure it's in the mail. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I, th- I think it's coming, but it, you know, there's a, it's a slow road from here to Toronto. You know. It sure, sure seems to be, yeah. Uh, Richard, thanks as always. Have a great weekend. We'll talk again yeah, soon. Richard Brennan, of course, uh, retired journalist uh, covering Queen's Park and uh, Parliament Hill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's listen to the facts before we make a decision about the Commonwealth Games and talking about some of the net benefits and legacy projects uh, from past games, including the first ones ever, uh, which was almost 90-odd years ago, I guess now, with the British Empire Games, which started right here in Hamilton. 
one of the common criticisms has been, look, at, we just can't afford this because the price is just too onerous. Well, Lou Fraporti is a Hamilton lawyer who's been the spokesperson for the group that's trying to bring the games here, and he took exception to those kind of comments. This is what he told us. Our consideration of a, of a pivot to 26, which we didn't initiate, but, but the Federation raised with us, was intended to be entirely about um, supporting pandemic relief at a time of great economic devastation in, in the region. And as a consequence of their flexibility in what it is that they were offering us, uh, we, we are on a path to a reduced games in terms of size. And that's where we are as of now. And, and opposition to the games, of course, is not something new. I want to bring uh, David Grevenberg into the conversation. David is the chief executive officer of the Commonwealth Games Federation and uh, joins us from the U.K. as he uh, jumps up here on the Bill Keller Show on CHML. Uh, David, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could uh, join us today. Bill, it's great to be on and good to hear your voice. David, let's talk a little bit about that. You were deeply involved, of course, in the uh, the 20, 2014 games in, in Glasgow, uh, and, of course, as the, the CFO for these games. Opposition, especially opposition because of the cost of these things, is, is not new to you. You've heard this before. How do you address a question like that? Well, I think it's absolutely prudent for particularly uh, councillors and citizens to, to ask uh, what, what is the cost-benefit or, or value proposition. And uh, what we've done over the past several years is ensure that um, our games act as a stimulus package uh, for the communities that we ultimately end up hosting the games in, and that essentially uh, they are uh, leaving the communities that we work with in a better place. Um, we've actually restructured our entire movement. Um, you know, this is a, this is long, uh, evolved, uh, since the 1930 games, uh, that were in Hamilton and, and probably similar to how Hamilton, um, is evolving. Our games have been used as a wonderful force for regeneration. Um, you know, Glasgow is a great example. Manchester, another great example. Um, and, and we, we have a long list, but we've recently also published a report that has shown that our games and the model that we are continuing to evolve uh, adds value to the communities that we're trying to to serve. And uh, to, the, to the point where also our entire framework around uh, creating impact is now focused not just on great infrastructure, but also great socialization and social impact and benefit. One of the other things, uh, the common theme in, in some of the people that are opposed to this, and there have been some op-ed pieces and a number of people have joined us on the program to talk about this too, David, is look at this is COVID-19 and this era of COVID-19, this is just the wrong thing to be doing and the wrong time. Now, we're talking about the 2026 games, and I, I'd like to think that we're, we're not going to be dealing with COVID-19 by then, uh, but the residual impacts of what COVID has done to the economy and other things may well still be with us. Is, is it prudent to carry on with the games in, in that circumstance? No, I think, you know, I, I think we all um, have to be absolutely respectful of the world that we're living in today. Um, but we also, um, as part of the recovery ac um, aspects that start to move forward in terms of issues around austerity and where investments are, are being brought forward as new opportunities, particularly jobs and skills development, um, and as you start to create cities of tomorrow, smart cities, um, and how you bounce back in terms of stimulating the economy, one of the wonderful aspects when a games is run right and you're able to get uh, public, private, and third sector support rallied around these games, which are, you know, it's quite, uh, it's, it's quite a unique, unique project because nothing quite brings all of these different sectors together so multidisciplinary and all walks of life in terms of rallying behind uh, this, this uh, launch pad. Um, it's, not a, it's not a landing strip in terms of uh, uh, a finish. It's actually, if you create the games as a launch pad to, as a, as a catalyst to bring you into uh, you know, your future, then th that, that tends to, to, uh, to really deliver on the, on the promise when delivered right with all of the right bells and whistles. And, and, and that's, it's not just 11 days of great competition. It's actually a stimulus package that uh, helps the community move forward on a number of uh, aspects. And that includes, obviously, infrastructure uh, development or things that are accelerated for the games um, uh, or specifically by the games. And I think that that's really important, that most of the legacy aspects that are brought forward by games are not 
exclusively for games, but they're brought forward by the games. And I think that that's something um, is, that's a help uh, during these challenging times. But then there's a number of social programs that uh, are derived. And we've done a number of things in, in terms of work with uh, Truth and Reconciliation uh, as well in places like uh, Australia around uh, engaging uh, marginalized communities, um, particularly around indigenous communities and the Torres Strait and Aboriginal communities. So um, we've got, uh, uh, you know, uh, we, we believe a really powerful force that uh, can add a lot of value. Well, yeah, we it's need a to. Uh, no, I no, but it's it's in, that's what we're looking for at this point, David. Is 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 some details about this, and and the group I'm sure you're aware is going to make a presentation to City Council in a couple of weeks, and and hopefully some of the things that you just talked about are going to be a part of that. But I want to ask you about the legacy element to this because it's another element that some people are a little apprehensive about. But as I mentioned in my commentary earlier this morning, uh, two infrastructure projects that were part of those first games back in 1930, uh, the Jimmy Thompson Swimming Pool, which is still there, by the way. And I said, that's part of the legacy. How many hundreds of thousands? Of, how many hundreds of thousands of Hamilton kids have swam in there, competed in there? Uh, you know, the, the stadium, which was just replaced a few years ago. Uh, I I used to go there for track and field meets when I was a kid. I played high school football there. I mean, these were parts, and for generations, parts of the Hamilton legacy. Uh, and that's one of the hallmarks of these games, isn't it? Yeah, world class and community relevant, and that's the, that's the critical. Is that you don't just plan for the games; you plan for the community, and the games benefit. And the games have the privilege of accelerating these pieces. But if you plan right and you do it at the right scope and scale, and we now have a track record of a number of games where uh, we, you know, our cost benefit uh, ratio is is up. We're actually just continuously and consistently delivering values to the communities and the people that we serve. And we really see it. You know, we really see it as a service to society games. And that's what we're that's really what we're about. And uh, Commonwealth Sport Canada and the team that you have in, in Hamilton are really uh you know supporting uh you know th- that vision and mission. And we're doing that around the world. So you know whether it's our youth games uh, we brought our youth games to Samoa. We brought our youth games to the Bahamas. Um, we've had to reschedule our youth games uh, in Trinidad, Trinidad and Tobago because of COVID. But, you know, what we're trying to use is the power of sport to, to make the world a better place. And, you know, our games, the place of origin is Hamilton. You know, Hamilton's journey since 1930, our journey, journey since 1930, we see this as a great opportunity to, to reconnect and, and, and build, a, build a great future. David, let's, let's talk a little about that because it's another area of concern for some of the folks that have some questions about this. The initial bid, the initial idea here was 2030, the 100th anniversary of the Games. Uh, as Lou Fraporti has told us, they pivoted to 2026 uh, in conversation with you. Why the move? Why to 2026? Yeah, you know, uh, to, to be to be quite frank, we've been we have actually been working uh, quite closely and quite exclusively with Commonwealth Sport Canada for a number of years now, um, looking at bringing the games back to Canada. Um, obviously, the last games were Victoria, nineteen ninety four, uh, which were you know, uh, also a resounding success and, uh, and had some really iconic uh, moments uh, in in Commonwealth sport. Um, and we've been looking at how do we how do we get back to Canada and how do we really make the games that. that um, are, are, are really embodies um, the values that we're trying to, to push forward in terms of uh, the, the modern Commonwealth um, that are aligned with uh, Canadian values. And what, what we've really identified in Commonwealth Sport Canada in particular is that right now, considering where we are and the interest um, in, in games that is, continues to build, is that 2026 is an ideal time for this partnership to, to, to really come together. And that's why in, in looking at that, the place of origin in Hamilton, where we're going and using Hamilton as a real platform in which the next, uh, you know, the, the, the next centenary of Commonwealth sport can really be launched from. 2026 for us and we really believe for Canada is a fantastic seminal moment. David, we're looking for specifics, and at some point uh, we're going to get to a, a place where you're going to have to get a commitment from this city and from this group. Uh, when is that date? Do you have some ballpark ideas to when you'd like to get some definitive answers? Well, we're obviously cognizant of uh, you know the current situation, but we're also cognizant that you know uh, time is ticking to 2026, and we have plenty of time right now to to really, uh, with the availability of venues around uh, some of the plans and, and, and uh, what we understand in terms of potential projects that could be accelerated uh, by, this, uh, by this ambition, 
um, you know, we, we really are looking uh, within the next couple of months to really get a firm commitment to where we're where we're going and if Hamilton's going to be a partner on this journey. So, end of September, we'll be looking for a yes or no then. Yeah, I mean, we're really look we're really looking um, as soon as possible to get. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to put a definitive uh, definitive date on the decision, but I do I do want to say that it you know the sooner the better because it allows us to start really moving forward and also allows uh, both Hamilton and Canada to to benefit from our uh, games in Birmingham, uh, which will be the next Commonwealth Games in 2022. And, of course, uh, you know, that, that, that connectivity as well in terms of uh, transfer of knowledge, uh, collaboration and partnership, um, and uh, also trade and investment. David Grevenberg, Chief Executive of the Commonwealth Games Federation. David, thank you so much. I know you're a busy guy over there, and uh, we will, as you're getting ready for, for the next games in just a little while here, but uh, hopefully we'll be talking again about the Hamilton bid sometime in the future. We do appreciate the time today. Thank you so much, Bill. Have a great day. Take weekend. care. David Grevenberg from the Commonwealth Games Federation. But as we said, there is opposition to this, and there has been since the first day that this was announced that Hamilton was going to try to pursue this. Uh, included in that opposition is an online petition against bringing the uh, the games to Hamilton. Uh, Ian Borsick uh, was on our program. Of course, Ian's one of the people that was uh, uh, the creator of this online position, and this is what he told us. Like the Commonwealth Games and other similar events have played out in other cities, there's a lot of evidence out there that uh, the Commonwealth Games hasn't, you know, doesn't necessarily uh, mean that we're going to get all the benefits being promised right now. And, you know, really, this is all very theoretical. And at the same time, uh, we're having this discussion during an unprecedented global pandemic that has put us into a financial hole. And I think really the city needs to think about the priorities and think about where that money that would be going to the games and going to staff time to design and host these games, whether that is the best use of our public dollars. That's the same question, I think, that was the theme of uh, an op-ed piece that uh, appeared in the Hamilton Spectator just a couple of days ago, uh, authored by Kojo Dampty. Kojo, of course, is the manager of programs for the Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion and uh, has been a guest many times on this program. Kojo, welcome back. It's great to have you with us again today. Hello. Good morning. Uh, read with great interest your op-ed piece the other day, and I, the, the, the takeaway I got from that is, look, at, this is just the wrong time to be even thinking about this. Is that, is that a, a, a safe evaluation of what you, the message you were trying to get across? Yes, that, that's, basically, that's basically the short, uh, uh, the short point of the opinion piece. Uh, I think we're, we're all struggling, everybody's struggling, uh, municipalities, provinces, the feds, um, and even with the announcement of the 19 billion from the Fed, even uh, Ontario is going re- going to receive 7 billion. How much is Hamilton going to receive? Right. So these are critical questions. And to have these games at this particular time, uh, when uh, you know we have issues around transit, uh, we have uh, issues around housing. Uh, so th- these are the questions that we are. Uh, we are posing, and uh, and I think it's important to, for council to also ask those questions as well. And certainly, people in the community, as you have done when you've been on the program in the past, is is it the timing of this, Kojo? Is it just because this is because of of COVID and because of uh, well, let's talk about transit. You talk about public transit, for, is it for instance? We don't know what's going on. I know there was a task force that that apparently have made some recommendations and some suggestions. The province hasn't acted on that. Are there just too many question marks for you right now? Yeah, there, there is just so many question marks. Look, last, uh, last week, um, our chief medical officer presented to council and was asking for $2 million to, um, hire contact staff, uh, uh, staff members that could do contact tracing. And, co- and some counselors were like, look, $2 million is too much. Are we getting money from the province? Can we ask money for the, uh, from the province to augment some of these, these funds? So, our city can even spend $2 million on public health, and yet we want to uh, uh, invest hundreds uh, of millions into into games that won't even address the current issues that we are in. So those are the, those are the, the critical questions that uh, need to be asked. There is the possibility, and because there's no commitment at this stage, but there is the possibility, of course, of money from federal and provincial governments. That's what they've done traditionally uh, with other cities, uh, you know, that have held, uh, whether it's the Olympics or Commonwealth Games or Pan Am Games or whatever the case might be. 
does that sway you one way or another? There could be some influx of, of dollars here for some of these things like affordable housing. And let's face it, if they're going to have to build an athlete's village, uh, invariably, where that's happened in the past, that has turned into affordable housing for people, which would be a net benefit for the city. And that's only one element of this. But uh, is there is there a body of work or some of those details that may come forth in the next couple of weeks that, that might sway you one way or the other? Well, we'll see the details. I haven't yeah. seen I haven't seen any details, but no, neither I mean, have I. From exactly, so from what we we know and what we've seen, I think that that's why we are asking these questions. And even if there were, to, if, even if there was money from the Fed and the province, right, the the same the same question applies. That is still uh, uh, taxpayers' money, right? That could go to augment current uh, critical needs. Right? Like even CERB, even uh, uh, money for, for businesses that are struggling. If there were to be a second wave, most people have said, look, if businesses were to close down, there are some that were teetering on the, on the edge of actually being extinct, right? So when we are talking about, you know, uh, 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 benef- the benefits of, a ga- of gains, right, we're not saying that there aren't any benefits there might be some but at this current time where people are are, are struggling where we have a public health uh, pandemic on our on our hands where we need contact tracing where we are asking people to wear masks where uh, the, the 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 limitation of crowds right that is also a thing right even though we are in 2020 we're going to have to change how we do public settings right so these are things that are, are, are not being uh, addressed, and we need to think about when we're going to ask uh, the taxpayer to put in millions of dollars. One of the frustrations that I'm feeling and I'm sensing from, well, your op-ed piece and a number of other uh, things and people that are given input here is, is that we're kind of shooting in the dark here because we don't know the details. And, and I'm looking forward, and I'm sure you are, uh, to when this co- bid committee goes before council in the first week of August and, and lays out a plan and says this is what we're going to do. They've told us that they have scaled back their expectations uh, because of what's going on with COVID, but we don't know what that looks like. And it's hard to make a definitive decision until we get that information, isn't it? Yes, and we'll, we'll, we'll wait to see those details like everyone else. Uh, but I think, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the impetus of the situation is allowing, is allowing people to sign on to, uh, the online petition that, uh, uh, Ian started. Cause it, when you, when you just think about it, you, the first question is like, well, aren't there other priorities that we should be, uh, we should be thinking about. They said that they can they can provide it at uh, no cost to the tax to the taxpayers, and so we'll see the details. But even with that assertion, the 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 the, the city of Hamilton still has to provide certain uh, 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 certain resources in kind, and those in kind uh, services still cost money. So. We'll, we'll wait to see what the details are, but I think it's important for residents to uh, to listen to residents that are saying, hey, look, can't we uh, think about other things uh, that are important right now uh, uh, to think about? Well, that presentation in a couple of weeks is is not going to be the end of the conversation. It's probably going to act as an accelerant to, to the debate, and I know you're going to be part of it, Kojo, and we'll look forward to your further input once we get some of those numbers. Thanks so much for this today. Great talking with you again today. No problem. Thank you. Take care. Kojo Dampty, of course, from the Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion. And the debate will continue uh, for the next few weeks, if not months, of course, about what's going to happen with those Commonwealth Games bids. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.